What is up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Balling Out Show. This is your host, Rashil Patnola. Today I have with me Mr. Jonathan Golden. Jonathan Golden is the founder of Land a Thousand Hills Coffee, an international coffee company that promotes social, spiritual, and economic justice for coffee farmers in Rwanda. Land a Thousand Hills currently operates in five cafes in the Atlanta metropolitan area and has 65 independent and affiliated cafes throughout the United States. Jonathan, how are we doing today? Doing well. Thank you, Rasheel. Good, good to good to chat with you for a little while today. Kind of curious. Um, how did you how did Land of the Thousand Hills come to be and kind of what got you started in um sure. getting into coffee? So my my education training was in psychology, and I started a consulting business doing uh industrial psychology, did a lot of management training, executive coaching helping CEOs of smaller businesses as well as leaders in Fortune 500 companies strike the balance between life and work. I created a program called the Life's Work Program, and I reached a point where I was pouring my life into helping leaders create their community, yet I was kind of a uh, community nomad because I was going from place to place to place. And I wondered, what would it be like to invest my time and efforts into a community over the long haul? Chatted with my wife about it, decided to go to seminary and became an ordained Anglican priest, planted a worshiping community of entrepreneurial entrepreneurs and independent folks. And we started gathering uh, with the idea of investing in people from birth to marriage to death and, and connecting with people. Through that process, became friends with an Anglican bishop in Rwanda, and I asked him how we could help. This is at that point, I guess, was nine years after the genocide. And he said, hmm, my country had good coffee prior to the war. So I flew over, and it was like a collision of purpose, passion, and proficiency. Uh, unfortunately, Rwanda, over a million people were slaughtered in less than 100 days. Um, neighbor was turned against neighbor, primarily due to outside influences of uh, Western countries that were in many ways the, uh, the silent... Uh, architects, if you will, and, and perpetrators of, of what happened there. And I went over and I'm Jewish on my dad's side. So I, I grew up wanting to kick the butts of neo-Nazis in Skokie, Illinois, when I was growing up. But of course, that wasn't realistic. Uh, after World War II, the world said never again. And after the Rwandan genocide, they said never again, again, because we turned our backs on another group of people. Anyways, I went over, sat on the hillside with two coffee farmers. This was after we built our first coffee washing station. And I had John and Clementine sitting next to me. And they grew up with one another. He was indoctrinated by the Intraharma, which were the killing squads. He murdered her family. Went after her. She went into hiding. War ended. He went into prison, had an encounter with God came back, asked for forgiveness. They created what they called the Gakacha courts or courts of the grass, where if you were a perpetrator, you went back to your village. If you confessed what you did and they forgave you, you were literally released from prison, but then you had to make amends. Anyways, I sat on the hillside with these two and they said, the government told us to reconcile. Our house of worship told us how to reconcile but through our common work and coffee, we've experienced reconciliation. And that's what I like to call my calling shot. That, that's when everything came together. And I said, this is, what, this is what I want to invest my life in. Now, 15 years later, we have, my goodness, we have 12 Land of a Thousand Hills coffee houses here in the U.S. We have 
two coffee washing stations in Rwanda. We partner with 10,000 farmers. We've been able to build schools, clinics, orphan care, widow care, and, and all the time creating places like the Cypress store where folks come and enjoy a good cup of coffee and they can literally drink coffee and do good. That's wonderful. I appreciate you sharing that. For the people who are listening, could you dive a little bit briefly into the context behind um, Rwanda at the time and what was going on with the genocide? So what happened is is Rwanda consists and consisted of three ethnic groups. You had your Tutsis, your Twas, and your... uh, Hutus, Tutsis, Twas, and Hutus. Tutsis descended from Ethiopia. Um, they were actually practicing Jews. They traced their Jewish faith back to the Queen of Sheba in Ethiopia, who was friends with, with King Solomon and took the Jewish faith from Israel to Ethiopia. Ethiopians descended down into Rwanda, and the Tutsis were practicing Jews. Hutus were workers of the fields. Tutsis were owners of the cows, and Twas were potters. They worked in the clay. All three ethnic groups worked in very much an egalitarian manner. Tutsis were the ruling kings, but from what I gather, they, they didn't lord over their authority like nobles and serfs the way, way they did in, in Europe. Everybody kind of got along. Well, it became a Rwanda became a German colony. And then after World War One, it was given to the Belgians. Um, the Belgians came in and first thing they wanted to do was to get work done. Well, in Europe, you had your nobles and your serfs. So they these Belgian priests came in and they forcefully converted the Tutsis from Judaism, from practicing Jews into Christianity. Um, they then went around and measured foreheads and noses. Literally, you you'd be you'd have your forehead measured and they'd say, Oh, you're Tutsi, because Tutsis tended to have more. European looking features, um, longer heads, higher foreheads, almost Hasidic uh, look, looking features. Um, <coughs> Hutus were more rounder faced and stockier, yet everybody had kind of inbred. So you're of Indian descent, right? But let's say you marry a Irish American girl mm-hmm. and then you have a, a child. And well, what is your child? Your child's American, mm-hmm. you know, part Indian, part Indian, you know, but <clears throat> the Belgians came and they measured foreheads. They literally measured noses. They gave people ID cards. And then they said to the Tutsis, you're going to be the ruling party and Hutus, you're going to be the, the underdogs. Well, that obviously created resentment. Then in the late 1940s, those same Belgian priests that put the Tutsis, not just as a royal family, but the controlling tribe, the Belgian priests that did that bought into Marxism, and it was the power of the people. So then they basically said to the Hutus, which were the majority, hey, don't take it from the man like this, rebel, rebel. That led to the first genocide where 150,000 Tutsis were murdered, many Tutsis then exiled to the Congo, to Uganda, other neighboring countries. Then in the 1990s, there was the starting of a second genocide. Meanwhile, President Paul Kagame, who's now the president of Rwanda, was in exile to Uganda, grew Mm -hmm. up in Uganda, went to the U.S., was trained in the U.S. military, went back to Uganda. The the second genocide started because of all of this unrest of of lack of egalitarianism. And first time in world's history that I know of, one country's army was birthed in another country. So President Kagame started the Rwandan Patriotic Front, 
while he was a Ugandan military officer. And overnight, all these Rwandans who had grown up in Uganda and were in the Ugandan military changed their uniforms, crossed the border, and started stopping the genocide. Um, the <coughs> eventually the Rwandan Patriotic Front one put an end to things. Uh, unfortunately, the U.S. turned its back. Um, horrific things went. You would either kill or or be killed. Um, husband was turned against wife. Uh, leaders of houses of worship invited people in for quote unquote safe harbor, then turned the keys over to the militant groups who proceeded to slaughter everybody. And this, this was in a country that prior to Western involvement, everybody was getting along pretty well. Um, fast forward to today, forgiveness is flourishing there. Uh, people have learned to forgive each other. Rwanda is the fastest growing economy in the world. People ask me, am I safe there? I'm safer in Rwanda than I am in here in Roswell, Georgia. Um, wow. Beautiful country, hardworking people, uh, and the coffee's beautiful. Mm -hmm. So is coffee a um, primary crop in the country of Rwanda? Kind of, you know, so what year exactly was it that you first got to Rwanda? Because I know you mentioned that you got to Rwanda, you were in the village, you were talking to the coffee farmers, and then Land of Thousand Hills was born through that. Right. So Rwanda is known as land of a thousand hills. So beautiful country, literally thousands and thousands of hills. And what had happened prior to our involvement and Tim Schilling, who is now director of the World International Coffee Institute, he is actually a Texas A&M professor. And at the time went over to Rwanda on a USAID grant and started establishing coffee washing stations where farmers could then process their coffee and have specialty grade coffee like we have in our shops. Prior to that, farmers were getting paid as little as 40 cents a pound and the European coyotes, as they call it, would come and buy. So let's say you're a farmer and it costs you 60 cents a pound to grow your coffee. And I come and say, okay, Rashid, I'll give you 40 cents a pound. You're like, Jonathan, I, I can't do that. I would be losing 50% of my cost of goods. And I say, that's okay. I'm the only game in town. And I walk away. You are basically an indentured servant at, at that point. Mm -hmm. uh, what we did was we went in and we guaranteed the farmers we work with a fair trade price or better. Um Farmers we work with now are getting the equivalent of $2.25 per pound for their coffee versus 15 years ago, 40 cents. Uh, we practice what we call collaborative trade. Um, the word, the Greek word for collaborate is synergy. So when, when we talk about having synergy, that means we're co-laboring with each other. And coffee is our highway of trade into the villages. And we want to assure a, a flourishing wage for the farmers we work with. But once we're there, we ask, how else can we help? And uh, we let that be community-led. So in one village, we were able to come together and build a school where 500 students now gather together. These are children and grandchildren of people that were once killing each other in the war. It's called the Forgiveness School. Uh, We've been able to come together in one community, they needed orphan care. Another community, they needed a corn mill. Uh, most recently, we have built a health clinic on the shores of Lake Kivu, which opened in January of 2020. Uh, since that time, 22,000 patients have been cared for. It was very strategic in doing COVID testing and providing COVID vaccinations. Um, and we're just now in the midst of opening a maternity ward where women will be able to 185 women and their children will give birth there. Um, so yeah, coffee, coffee and healthy capitalism is the right hand. 
And mm -hmm. the left hand is what I would like to call collaborative, helping your brother out. I, I don't like to call it charity because it's more of a, uh, we're in this together to make things better. That's awesome. Um, could you explain a little bit about how the coffee is sourced? What goes into the cup of coffee? Oh, yeah. So, first of all, most farmers in Rwanda are small landholders, meaning the average farmer we work with will have anywhere between 50 and 100 coffee trees. Um, had one farmer say, I've got this on video, he said, I dress my coffee trees better than I dress myself. I love my coffee trees. He said, when I first started working, I couldn't get a loan from a bank. Now banks come to me wanting to loan me money. So coffee farmers take pride in their work. One coffee tree will produce the one 12 ounce bag of roasted coffee a year. So, oh, wow. I, for instance, drink at minimum one bag of coffee a week, one 12 ounce bag. So if, if you look at that, I am, I am drinking the fruit of 52 coffee trees a year. So that's like one farmer's living wage that I'm partnered with my, myself. So coffee farmers, they have their trees. Once the cherries get ripe, they, they pick the cherries. Then they have 12 hours to get it to the washing station. They will walk, run, ride bike. We've been able to provide about a thousand coffee cargo bikes to farmers throughout the years where they then they've got to get to the washing station within 12 hours. Why? Because if it's longer than that, the coffee starts to ferment and you get kind of a dirty mouth to it. When you drink the coffee, it's a very gritty. I don't know if you've ever had coffee where you drink and it kind of tastes like dirt. Mm -hmm. That That's what happens once it gets overly fermented. So they get it to the wash station within 12 hours. First thing they do is the, the cherries are weighed. They get money in the hand right away, which is very rare. Quite often wages are held back and then they can't pay school fees. And, and our farmers are like, we love working with Thousand Hills because they pay us the day <laughs> the day we bring mm. the cherries. Uh, so caught cherries are weighed. They then go into a flotation tank. Good cherries sink, bad cherries float. They skim off the bad cherries. Then it goes into a depulping machine where the flesh of the cherry is taken off. And that then goes to fertilizer. The coffee bean, as you and I call it, is actually the seed of the cherry. That then goes into a fermentation tank where it's fermented for I believe it's up to 32 hours and the fermentation takes off the sugary mucolage. So it's a sugar that, that comes off of it. At that point, it's washed. It goes onto the drying tables. It's hand sorted on the drying tables. Once it reaches 12% humidity, then it goes into the storehouse. When it's ready to be milled, it then goes to Kigali. It goes through a mill and it takes off what's known as the second skin. And then you have what's called the green coffee bean. At that point, it gets loaded into a shipping container. In fact, we have 42,000 pounds of this. Right now, it's somewhere on the ocean. It's coming into the port of Savannah and then it will come here to Roswell, Georgia. Uh, it's put into bags that are 132 pounds each. That's the green coffee. Then we roast that. It goes into a 12 ounce bag or a five pound bag or two pound bag. It gets shipped, for instance, to Cypress, Texas. There at that point, the barista grinds it, makes your drink. <clears throat> so we have one of the only companies in the world that is completely vertically integrated. We touch the coffee from the planting of the seedling all the way to serving you a drink. Now, rather than calling it a supply chain, I call that a community of craftsmen. So I like to think of you sitting at the table in Cyprus, having your cappuccino and across the table is Melinda, the owner of that cafe. 
and also Glorious, the coffee washing station manager, and Ildefons and the other farmers were all sitting around the table, and Alex, our roaster, and we're we're drinking that cup of coffee because we're a community that all brings something to the table. That's really cool that you you know you get to see the coffee from start to finish. Um, so you mentioned that you opened up your first first store. Was that in Georgia? Yeah, our first store was in Roswell, Georgia. It's an old uh, it's an old mill house. Um, what year did you open it up? So we've been in business now. This is our 16th year, and we opened that two years in. So I guess that store is about 14 years old. Oh, wow. Um, so kind of, you know, what were what was it like, you know, from a business perspective, opening it, the first store? You know, did you have any challenges that you faced, and how were you able to scale it to multiple locations? Um, I, I, I did. So uh, as I mentioned, I was an industrial psychologist, and mm-hmm. At the time, I believe I was billing $300 per hour for my consulting services. I just finished three days consulting for a uh, insurance company in Manhattan. And I was sitting in Bryant Park having my lunch after three days consulting. So do the math. And my manager calls me and says, Jonathan, we just broke $100 today in revenue. I said, Lord, what have I got myself into? Because, you know, when you consult, it's zero cost of goods. Worst case scenario, you work a few hours longer. In coffee, you have rent, you have labor, you have cost of goods, you have overhead. So it was very challenging in the early years. And I basically funded it through my back pocket, through my consulting business. Um Coffee is a hard business in that you and I could go to one of my coffee shops and literally be there for two hours and walk away with a $10 to $12 ticket. You and I could also go to my favorite local Irish pub for two hours and each of us have three pints. So we would then be like a $50 ticket. So same two hours, same rent. One ticket is $10. The other is $50. So you, you do the math. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants a local gathering place, but not a lot of people want to pay for it. Uh, there's a book called The Great Third Place and then The Late Great Third Place by Ray. I think it's Oldham is his last name, but he was a Florida State professor. And the great third place, first place is home, second place is work, third place is your coffee shop, your pub, your local pizza joint, it's where you gather. The reason he wrote the late great third place is great third places are not typically financially viable. Uh, You have to have something else that supports it. Starbucks started as great third places. Mm -hmm. They have now... (laughs) turned into drive-throughs. Starbucks won't go anywhere right. through. They they literally put in uncomfortable furniture because they don't want you hanging out. That they want the churn. Right. Um it's funny I in one of my um business classes I was taking we did a case study on Starbucks and one of the things that they mentioned was what you said about how they primarily shifted to a drive-through business. And I know Starbucks is a very popular company that, you know, in business school gets a lot of uh, case studies done. And kind of, I guess my question is, is, you know, when you opened up that first location, um, obviously you said it was 14 or 16 years ago. Um, Kind of how did you get the word about or kind of what was the marketing strategy? Was it primarily organic through family and friends or, you know, because I believe back then social media probably didn't exist. Yeah. And... So it, it's a good question. Um, it was family, it was friends. It was every time there was a, every time the mayor of Roswell did a ribbon cutting, like for a new park or um, 
a new building, we would be there giving away free coffee. Uh, Christmas time, they do the town square where Santa Claus comes here, you know, on a sleigh in Roswell, we would be there giving away free coffee. So we, we had what I, what I call mountain gorilla marketing. Um, mountain gorillas are in Rwanda and we would just show up everywhere <coughs> introducing people to our, our product. And then of course, signage buddy of mine's a sign maker and, you know, land of a thousand Hills was a big mm-hmm. word, but Greg said to me, you've got to have coffee stand out because as you're driving down the road, if people know you, they don't need to read land of a thousand Hills coffee or land of a thousand Hills. They just want to see, Oh, there you are. If they don't know you, Land of a Thousand Hills won't matter and they want to see coffee. So just a simple thing of our signage and smaller font being Land of a Thousand Hills and then Coffee House being what's bold. And that's that's a simple example of knowing what it is that you do best. What is your value proposition? And emphasize that value proposition versus what's in the background right what would you say that as a company land a thousand hills is value proposition is because obviously you know within the coffee industry there's big players like starbucks or dunkin donuts or um, kind of how does land a thousand hills differentiate itself is it primarily through its mission or you know the coffee itself the taste so I'd, I'd say, yes, our, our mission is to craft beautiful coffee, create purposeful work and cultivate flourishing community. Uh, if you're crafting something beautiful, it's easy to find purpose in it. If, if you're making crap, it's hard to find purpose in it. So it starts with crafting something that, that's, that's truly beautiful from, from the farmers to our roasters to the barista. And then we find purpose in that work. So then when you go into one of our shops, so purpose and beauty are caught almost like a virus. So when you go into one of our shops, you're sensing the beauty, you're sensing the barista taking pride in their work and finding purpose. And that fuels you as you're doing your study. It's you, you want to be in that place and, and in that vibe. So you're crafting beautiful coffee, you're creating purposeful work, and then you cultivate flourishing community. If you take your purposeful work, like this podcast, and I take my purposeful work in coffee, that's the basis for community. Um, true sustainable communities are not me and my buddies going out for beers. Okay, that, that, that's okay, but that's not community. True community results when people bring their purposeful work and they contribute to the greater whole. And then everything starts working better. So what is our value proposition? I think we're all created to want to do good. I think we're all created to be part of community. I think we're all created to look, to make something say, that's good. Jonathan, you kicked butt today. You, you made something beautiful. And then for me to share that with others, and they say, yeah, that is beautiful. Thank you for, thank you for doing that. <clears throat> and I'm not sure that there are a lot of places that do that, that invite people from all tribes and nations and gay, straight, bi, black, white, Hindu, Christian, Jew, Muslim. It doesn't matter. We're, we're all created the same. And, you know, coffee has no faith, right? Right. <laughs> Except we, we want to bring something beautiful to life. And, that's what happens within our cafes. Right. Um, that's wonderful. I appreciate you sharing that. I think it's so interesting because many people might overlook it and 
just say, oh, it's a coffee shop or, but when you really unpack it, you know, you're, what you're doing is creating a community for people to continue to go to each local cafe and whether they're just there to hang out or studying or working on a project, um, they can continue going back to the same local cafe. It's the same people who are working there and creates that sense of community, which I think is just so important for overall just life fulfillment or satisfaction of, hey, you know, your local um, coffee barista or, you know, creating that sense of community, I think is very important and something, you know, in today's society that might be a bit lacking because we have become so digitalized. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I tell our baristas that they may be the only smiling face, a customer. We don't call our customers, customers, we call them citizens, but they, mm -hmm. they may be the only smiling face a citizen sees that day. And the reason we say citizen versus customer or consumer is customers and consumers take, citizens contribute. Uh, a consumer will call the police when the neighbors are fighting. The citizen knocks on the door and says, everything okay? Can I help out? Uh, consumers leave their dirty dishes on the table. Mm -hmm. The citizen picks it up and in fact picks up picks up what's on the table next to them and, and takes, takes it because they realize we're all in this together. Right. So you open up the first store in Georgia. Where was the next location? Was it in another city in Georgia as well? Or the Correct. Same yeah. So our first five stores were in, in Georgia. And <clears throat> what happened was developers, whether it be mixed-use developers or multifamily developers, started seeing the community that was created at our first store and said, hmm, wouldn't this be cool to have this kind of community in my mixed-use or multifamily you know, apartment building? So mixed-use developers, office developers, multifamily developers started asking us to open stores with them. And that led to uh, first out of state one. Well, so then we started franchising, which Cypress is a franchise. We have a franchise in North Boston, uh, Lynn, Massachusetts there. We have one down in Florida. <clears throat> and then corporate stores. Next one was West Nashville. And then Charlotte. We have one going into Philadelphia, one going to South Boston two going into Phoenix, Arizona, one going into Salt Lake City, one going into DC, another going into Denver, uh, another going to Morrisville, North Carolina. Wow. So you're expanding pretty quickly. We are. Yep. That's awesome. That's always a good thing as a business owner. Now, whenever you land a thousand hills corporate is looking at these, um, leases or specific areas um i know you mentioned that mixed development or mixed use retail or multifamily properties as well as offices were looking um at the space kind of what are there any certain characteristics that you guys look for in choosing a particular location so first and foremost the landlord and or developer has to have a heart for community because if they're viewing us only as a commodity, only as a rent check, then pretty soon we as people become a commodity. Right. So if, if, if you reduce the fruit of somebody's labor to a commodity, it's not long till you turn that person into a commodity. So we, we look for development partners who have a common vision with us because there are going to be ups and downs. There's going to be unforeseen circumstances. If we've got a common vision and common values, we'll work through that. But if I'm seen as only a rent check, then, then when the tough times come, it, it can become full of conflict. So first and foremost, we look for common vision. Secondly is we are not bashful at all to strike terms that we can live with. Um, 
it had a developer say, well, I could get three times that rent if I lease to a liquor store. My response is, okay, lease to a liquor store. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. we, 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 we could do a lot better if we had a bar here. Okay, lease to a bar. If you want a bar, have a bar. If you want a coffee shop, because the community that takes place in a coffee house is a lot different than what takes place in a liquor store or a bar. Right. Right. I agree a hundred percent. And even if it's collecting a little bit less of a rent check, having that coffee shop, that sense of community would allow for more people. Let's say it's a um, multifamily property to be vacant or to be occupied. um, Right. Because they see that you can, you can walk downstairs. There's the coffee shop and that in my opinion is far better better than having a liquor store or a bar but what you've got to do then Rashil, is you're, you're looking then at a multiple bottom line so if you got one bottom line which is just revenue that's one thing but if you say okay well we've actually got a triple bottom line here we have revenue but we also have social impact. And then might you might say, and we also want to have a spiritual impact or an environmental impact. Then you take this into account. And thankfully, we have many developers who are saying, yeah, we'd like to make some money off of this. But what Land of a Thousand Hills brings is a social impact, which in turn positively affects the revenue. So who would like to live in an apartment complex that has a wonderful coffee house and a place you could also grab a beer in the evening? That's pretty, that creates stickiness, right? Right. Maybe their rent is less for us, but that leads to increased stabilization on the residential side. Right. A hundred percent. I saw, I was looking at the website whenever um in preparation for this interview and i saw that you guys sell online as well would you say primary primarily your sales are in person or through the online store kind of when did you guys uh choose to go kind of direct to consumer we've been we've had our b to c business almost from day one but our b to b so Land of a Thousand Hills corporate selling to each of our individual shops and to office buildings and churches and whatnot is still the bulk of our business. We've, for whatever reason, I don't think we've ever really cracked that code of the digital B to C. I'd, I'd still like for us to figure out how to do that, but we've not, yeah, most our B2C business is 30 to 40% of our revenue. So primarily the sales come from in person through the shops. Yep. That's awesome. Um, Do you have any suggestions for people who are listening, who are looking to build a mission driven business or kind of some advice for people who are starting out? Um, You know, especially when it comes to, people who value the mission more than they do the profits and kind of how do you, what's that fine balance between the two? So I'll, I'll, I'll give a, a twofold response to that question. I, I think first of all, you have to be in this generous present moment. Uh, a lot of us spend a lot of time focused on the familiar past and what's happened in the past. And we spend a lot of time looking at the predictable future. So what happens is you're looking at your familiar past of, oh, life sucks and works hard. And, you know, this person broke up with me and I was raised this way and and Mm -hmm. all of this, this stuff in the past. Well, if that's where your, your mind is, your familiar past or your predictable future starts to look like your familiar past because neurons that fire together wire together so you have this world and life view you have this paradigm you have this cognitive schema that launches you out in the future that's based on what you did in the past but 
if you and I are in this generous present moment, literally right now, as you're looking at me and I'm looking at you, guess what? We can create something new. We can connect in this moment. And in the moment is where the heart is. So somebody that wants to do something mission-based, first of all, get in the moment, you know, meditate. I spent a lot of time mm -hmm. meditating, you know, meditate, just turn off the iPhone, turn off all this stuff that, that distracts you, slow down and say, what do I want to create now? Then you start getting a vision for what it is. And I would say, if you're really meant to do it, you're going to do it now. You know, so for instance, if you were to say to me, I want to have a Land of a Thousand Hills franchise, Jonathan, you mm -hmm. know what my response would be? Why don't you buy a 12-ounce bag of coffee and uh, start brewing up a pot and gather with your buddies in your dorm? Oh, no, no, no. Well, yeah. If, if, if indeed it's your calling, you're going to find a way to start doing it now. Not then, but now. And if you can't find a way to start living out your mission now, then you're not going to do it then. You've started a podcast. Brilliant. Wonderful. How many hurdles did you have to jump through to start a podcast? You, you easily could have said, well, once I graduate and once I have a studio and mm -hmm. you never do it but you're doing it now and you're planting the seeds for your mission. And I'm glad that you also brought um, kind of having that calling. There's a book I read a couple of years ago um, called shoe dog by Phil Knight, who is the founder of Nike. And it's ultimately his autobiography of how Nike came out to be. And in it, one of the main takeaways was also that he he said that um focus on finding a calling rather than you know just doing things for a profit's sake or just for a business sake like if you really have a true strong calling um things will work out and you know nike was unprofitable for many years and eventually it obviously went public so I think that, you know, having a calling is very important and I'm glad that you brought it up. And, and the, Rashil, the second way I'd answer that is, is you said profit versus mission. I would say it's both. So you've got to be in the present moment, start doing it. But one thing I've learned is when we do things for the right reason to follow the mission, that doesn't mean we have to be poor or do it for free or, or, or contribute. So to, to, I've kind of said this thing that if whatever work I do, is it good for me, for my neighbor and for God? Is it, is it a dwelling place? Is it the equivalent of, okay, I can invite God to come sit down and have a cup of coffee with me, my neighbor and me. And hey, this is a cool place for all of us. Um, sometimes mission-based companies do things because of the, the spiritual, right? We, right. we call to them. We do it for our neighbors, mm -hmm. but then we go home and eat ramen noodles for, for six years, right? Mm -hmm. I, I do think we can take the best of capitalism, and apply it to mission-based endeavors. And there's nothing wrong with that. And there's value to be paid. And if, if somebody doesn't want to pay for it, that's okay. So I, I would say, yeah, be in the present moment, follow your mission, but get with somebody that's savvy financially too, and have them look at the way you're doing things and Mm -hmm. you know, to that budding social entrepreneur, respect yourself enough to pay yourself. Do you know that, check this stat out. The average American makes sure that their dog or their cat has their meds more regularly than they do themselves. 
So we we take care of our animals better than we do ourselves. And I, I think, you know, financially, we need to take care of ourselves because if you don't, if you're an entrepreneur and you're not eking out your existence, you're not going to be able to give to others. Right. Do you have any tips for um, really anyone how they can be more financially responsible or entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs to, you know, allow themselves to take or to take care of themselves financially speaking? So I think one thing for most entrepreneurs and even social entrepreneurs, the, the guys from Behance wrote a book, I think it was called Getting Things Done. No, not that wasn't getting things done. I forget Behance is the the organization, but they have this entrepreneur's curve. So entrepreneurs have the spark, the idea, things are rocking and rolling, and they're exciting. Then they start to get stabilized. And at that point, they get boring. So they have another entrepreneurial idea. Well, all entrepreneurial ideas take resources, time, money, uh, so just when this idea starts becoming cash flow positive, we get diverted to do the next. So we're forever not letting things flourish because we're on to what's next. So either A, get used to being bored at times. There's nothing wrong with being bored. You've, you've created the Coca-Cola, now you bottle it, right? Bottling's not that mm-hmm. exciting, but that's what's gonna fun. So either get used to the boredom or partner with hire somebody that the bottling's not boring to them. So they're systematizing, stabilizing, and you're off to what's next. But if you're trying to create and stabilize at the same time, that's very hard to do both. Right. As we're kind of um, wrapping up this episode, do you, have any resources or books that you recommend for aspiring entrepreneurs in regards to um, building a business or just overall kind of tips on helping one find their mission or purpose? Yeah. So um, if, if you want a good just perspective on the overall business and kind of world climate, the way I think things function. Uh, Peter Senge wrote a book, it's several years old now, called The Fifth Discipline. Mm-hmm. And he, he studies really five different disciplines, systems thinking, um, personal mastery, shared visioning, uh, a couple others there. But that's that's kind of a good, broad approach to life and business um as far as finding your own calling there there are several out there i wrote a book called be you do good you know folks could take Mm. a look at that yes Uh, i'll have to add it to the show notes Um, (laughs) i didn't know that you wrote a book i did what what i did was it kind of tells the land of a thousand hills story Uh in a way that you can find your own story that's awesome what Color is Your Parachute by Richard Bowles is B-O-L-L-E-S is a classic on, on finding your, your calling and career as well. Um, I tend to not read a lot of business books. I read a lot of mm. philosophy and right. What kind of philosophy? Spiritual books. Um, lately, I've gotten in a lot of Joe Dispenza's work who wrote a book mm. called Becoming Supernatural. Mm-hmm. And he takes a uh, scientific approach to uh, meditation. So he integrates quantum physics with meditation and mind-body healing and, you know, how the mindset we have and create, then we, we, we create our reality. Um, I like to read the Bible, lots of, mm-hmm. lots of good stuff in there as you get into it. Uh, C.S. Lewis, George McDonald. Have you always been reading from a young age? Because throughout this episode, uh, you mentioned several books, whether it be history, philosophy, or even a few business books. Yeah, readings. Uh, I think 
authors, especially dead authors, have become my some of my dearest friends mm-hmm. as I you know, hear their perspective on life and how they approach things. And yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's very cool that you mentioned that you wrote a book. I had no idea. Um, kind of, do you mind sharing kind of the writing process of what it takes to write a book? Because I bet that must be, you know, quite challenging or a very creative, yeah. iterative process. So, so first of all, I wanted to write a book on finding your calling in life, but my platform was coffee. So mm-hmm. my, uh, my agent had said, great, I understand you want to write a book on finding your calling, but we all know you through coffee. So we've got to tie in the coffee. So first thing is you don't write a book for yourself. You write a book for your platform and you have to look at how your platform knows you. So I wrote a book for my platform of people that knew me through coffee and conferences I spoke at. So we told the Land of a Thousand Hills story, but then I used that as a mechanism to lead people to find their calling in life. And we, our slogan, Land of a Thousand Hills is drink coffee, do good. So the title of the book was Be You, Do Good. And it, it really goes back to what we talked about earlier, being in this present moment. What are you meant to do and be? First of all, be yourself. You know, un, uncover who you were created to be and, and slow down enough to see it and own it and start building your vision based on who you uniquely have been created to be. You know, you're the... You are the only young man right now who's doing a podcast, who has a mother that's doing organic gardening and creating these cool cookbooks and a father who is into technology and processes and, and uh, a family from India. And you know what? All this stuff comes together in one encapsulized being, which is you. Mm-hmm. So why in the flip would you try to go and duplicate what somebody else is doing versus mining whatever this creation that you are and then build off of that? And that's that's what Be You Do Good really focuses on is, is how do we get to know ourselves and then how do we set our course? And then how do we deal with the challenges that we're all going to face? Right. That's awesome. I appreciate you sharing that. Um, Jonathan, this was a great episode. I think that the people who are listening have a lot to take away. Um, are there any final thoughts that you have that you'd like to share or any kind of insights? I would just say, uh, Drink coffee, do good. Next next time you're you're enjoying a cup of coffee or a beer or a sandwich or whatever it is, take a moment to think about the people that made it and made it possible. Send them some good energy, offer up a prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, every morning I, I make a pour over and I grind my coffee. And as I'm I'm doing my pour over, I, I, I think of Lisa, our country director in Rwanda and the farmers there. And I I thank them and I send them good energy and I say a prayer for them. And I think if we all, if we all respected each other a little bit more, this world would be a better place. That's wonderful. I really appreciate you sharing that and coming on Jonathan. Yeah. Well, thank you, Rasheel and uh, keep up your good work. Awesome. Thank you.